Bible. So if you would please stand for the reading of Scripture. Um, Our passage today is from Luke uh, chapter 12, um, verses 13 through 21. If you want to look it up in your pew Bible, uh, it is on... Page 1108. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is God's word. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 12. Uh, It has been a privilege to hear uh, a testimony of what God has been doing in your lives this morning. Um, We just want to thank you guys again for being with us. And we want to take a few minutes this morning as well to to open God's word and see what he says here. So uh, please pray with me as we look at God's word. Gracious God, it is uh, an incredible gift to be able to worship a God who looks upon us and doesn't shake his head or wag his finger when he sees us in our brokenness and our sin, but looks with compassion and mercy. And Lord, that's what we have experienced from you in every way. And so, Lord, we pray for that same mercy as we look at your word this morning, that you and your mercy would give us eyes to see you and ears to hear your voice. Lord, change our hearts according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're new to Westgate, uh, our general practice as we look at the word on Sunday mornings is to work through different books of the Bible and kind of follow uh, the message uh, through each book along. Uh, This year we've been doing something a little bit different. We have been asking kind of the big question of what difference does the gospel of Jesus, so the the good news of who God is, of what he has done to establish his kingdom and to deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his eternal son, what difference does that message of God make for all of life, for every avenue of life? How do we apply it, not just for how we begin a relationship with Christ, but how we grow and walk with Christ in each avenue, whether we're talking about church life or home life, work, uh, which is the focus of 
the next few weeks, as, as we started looking last week, at the gospel at work. You know, apart from sleeping, we spend more hours in our lifetime at work than almost anything else. And so the question that we're thinking about is, how does the message of Christ shape that? What difference does that make? Is there any practical uh, difference for how we apply our faith or integrate our faith into our work? And last week, we kind of stepped back and looked at the bigger question about that. How does the Bible help us think about work in general? In kind of what we saw looking at the creation account and thinking about the fall and so on, is that work is not a curse, as we're tempted to think of it. It's not this necessary evil that I just, I do because I have to eat and live, but otherwise would just as well avoid. It's not a curse, nor is it a cure-all. It's not a, a life-giving savior that I can just depend on and find my identity in. Rather, work is a calling by God to participate in the flourishing of his creation through the redemptive work of Christ. And so that was what we looked at last week. But this morning, I want to get more specific on this question of work. Specifically, how do we measure success in our work? What does success really mean and really look like? And that's a critical category. Because if you, know, you step back and you think about your job, uh, if I kind of care about my job in, in, in any sort of way, then success is what I'm pursuing. There's some sort of measure, some sort of definition that I'm after. We want to know that our work actually matters, uh, that we're not wasting our time going through the motions, that we're achieving something. Many of us can be so driven by the pursuit of success that we'll spend countless hours uh, will sacrifice countless hours at great cost to self, sometimes at, at great cost to our families, sometimes at great cost to our personal integrity in order to get just a few steps closer to this elusive goal that we call success. And the failure to succeed on the flip side of that, when we are pursuing it and can't ever quite get there or find it, that can send us into a tailspin. Or it can lock us into this kind of deep and lonely trench over time. It could cause us to question our identity or our value, to even wonder what's the whole purpose of life. If, if I'm giving all of myself and all of my time to this and it, and it does nothing, it can send us into a, into a depression. It can cause us looking for the nearest escape hatch. And binging and purging on food or porn or Netflix or exercise or alcohol or drugs and so the question you know how do we measure this thing called success we all have this desire this drive to feel like we're good at something like we've achieved something but how do we actually measure that in a way that accords with god's vision for life and for work and i, I actually want you to ask yourself that question right now just personally when you think about your job your work whether it's changing diapers or or you know writing grant proposals right now how do you measure success personally when you get done at the end of a week or when you get done at the end of your career and look back what is it that will mark have to have marked your work for you to feel like this 
was a good investment. This was time well spent. How do you personally measure success? You can write it down on your worship folder if you want, but I want you to ask yourself that question personally. And as you're thinking about it, look with me at this story in the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel works together with Matthew and Mark and John to tell us the real, true story of Jesus Christ. And here in Luke, Jesus has been doing what he spent a lot of his ministry doing. He's been teaching. He's been uh, teaching the crowds and teaching his disciples on what it means to live as part of God's kingdom, teaching them who he is and what he's come to do. And in verses 1 through 12 of this chapter, he's been uh, talking specifically to his disciples about the importance of persevering in their faith when they come into opposition and persecution. He's having a little heart-to-heart with them about what it's going to take to continue to follow him even when the world wars against them. But then as the story continues, Jesus is suddenly interrupted by a question from the crowds. Verse 13. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And so, you know, you can imagine kind of the jolting, you know, we're having this little heart to heart. Now someone out here is asking, hey, 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 tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Kind of this awkward, you know, U-turn in the conversation. And, And what we find here is a man who's been following Jesus around, but not really to learn what Jesus has to say, but to see what Jesus can do for him. That's what he's after. He wants his brother to divide the family inheritance. And and to ask that question means almost certainly that that this is the younger brother speaking. Uh, In the ancient world, the oldest son would receive a double portion of the inheritance. Go back and look at Deuteronomy 21 and such. And, And so little Johnny here doesn't think that's very fair. And some of us can probably resonate with that. I mean, what happened to, you know, 50-50 or something like that? Why, why does he get twice as much? And, it, and so he comes to Jesus looking for an advocate, somebody to convince his brother, you know, to do otherwise. But listen to how Jesus answers him in verse 14. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And part of me wants to answer, um, God? Didn't, didn't God make you that? That's who you are. He's the judge of the living and the dead. But, but Jesus basically, his answer is basically saying, I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to play that game. Jesus' authority is not like some sort of influential uncle or friend who's got you know, power in high places and can maybe pull some strings for you to get what you want. Jesus cannot be manipulated like that. Instead, he exposes the problem in this man's heart. In verse 15, he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of of his possessions. This man measured his life according to a specific standard. 
the abundance of his possessions. That was his definition of success. And that definition, the way he measured his life according to his stuff, that definition drove that man, according to Jesus, to break the Tenth Commandment, do not covet. You shall not want for yourself what rightfully belongs to someone else. And what I think is interesting about this story in the broader question that I asked earlier, how do I define success, is that I think many of us, if we peel back, you know, whatever you might have written on your, on your worship folder to that answer, if you peel back the layers of that, I think many of us would be surprised to find an answer very similar to the man's answer here. The abundance of possessions. Not everybody, but many of us and most of the world around us, that's the measure of a successful life. He who dies with the most toys wins. There's an incredibly deep temptation in the human soul to measure our life and work according to what we have. And, and as I've been thinking about this, as it's good for a preacher to do, just, you know, okay, so what, how am I defining success? And, and, and trying to listen to God personally in this passage, I have to confess that is part of what the Lord has revealed to me this week as well as I think about my own definition of success. Now, if I think about what success looks like on the job, at my actual work, my answer is a little bit different. For me, success on the job basically boils down to approval. I want to be well thought of. I want, you know, for some pastors, it, they measure it by the size of their library or the size of the church or the size of the budget. For me, do you like me or not? That is my functional measure of whether I feel successful. Do people like my ideas? Do do, do people want to stay at the church and serve and so on and so forth? Uh, but when I think about success that results from my job, so, so how do I measure success in my life in terms of what I bring home from work? Then, if I'm honest, it boils down to the abundance of possessions. You know? and, and that can take any sort of, of shape. Maybe it's the size or location of our home. The kind of vacations we take, the kind of car we drive, the clothes that we wear, the food we eat, the gadgets or toys that we collect, the things in life that I think if I just had that, life would be so much easier and more comfortable. Or that might give me a particular social standing among others. You know? and, and with all of that definition comes then also the temptation to, to kind of be covetous and, and desire what I don't have and think I really deserve and, and even resentful of those who do. In a word, when we measure our lives according to the abundance of our possessions, in a word, what we're doing is we're worshiping our stuff. That's what's happening. We're treating our stuff as God. We look to our possessions for our identity for our social standing, for our security, for our fulfillment and satisfaction, which are things that only God can give and only God deserves to be trusted for. You know, maybe if I live in this town, I'd be worth something. Or if I wore these shoes, or if I ate at that place, or, or if I just simply didn't have to worry every month about where the rent was going to come from, then life would finally be worth something. 
we think that our stuff is going to fix our problems and give us life. You know, it's no mistake that the Apostle Paul drew a bright line of connection between the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, and the First Commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. He says in, in Colossians 3, 5 through 6, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Think about that. Covetousness, which is idolatry. You cannot claim to be trusting God when you spend most of your time treating something else as God. Covetousness is idolatry. And so we think our stuff will give us life. But what we fail to realize and what Jesus is trying to drive home in no uncertain terms in this story is that when we measure our lives according to our possessions or anything other than God, influence, power, whatever, when we measure our lives according to our possessions, not only will our stuff let us down, we will let God down as well. And Jesus drives that point home with a parable. And so look at Luke 12, 16. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now notice what Jesus is saying here with this story. First, he shows us. That if you worship your stuff, if you measure your life's work and success according to what you end up with in the end, your stuff will let you down. It cannot bear the weight of being treated like God. It will let you down. And there's two simple reasons for that here. First, you can't keep it forever. Very obvious. You know, the man in the parable, he put his security in his abundance of crops and his goods. But what happens if God calls you home tonight? Where's it go then? Where's that security? And then second, even if you could keep it, it won't satisfy. It cannot give you the fulfillment and the life that you're looking for. Because our possessions don't last forever, they're not able to, to fulfill us in any meaningful or lasting sense. Crops fail. Clothes wear out. Houses fall apart. Cars break down. Thieves break in. Rust and moth destroys. But so if you worship your stuff, your stuff will let you down. But worse than that imminent disappointment is that if we measure our lives according to our possessions, that actually robs us of what truly ma does matter and satisfy in life. Loving God and loving our neighbor. It's not just that 
our stuff lets us down, we let God down when we fall into that trap of finding success in what we have. Our vision of success becomes fueled by covetousness. We're driven in order to gain for ourselves what we do not have. And any experience of success that we enjoy becomes marked by greed. We must hold on to what we have worked so hard to attain and not let anybody else in. Again, you see both of those in the parable. The rich man who's already wealthy is blessed with a bumper crop, but rather than asking how he can do good to others and with what God has given him, he thinks only of number one right here. He keeps his stuff. He tears down his, his barns and builds bigger ones. But more than that, he trusts in his stuff. He puts his security, his faith, his hope in what he has. Decides he can go on vacation for a few years. But notice what it is about his behavior that Jesus is actually criticizing. He doesn't criticize the hard work that resulted in a bumper crop. He doesn't criticize the fact that the man is wealthy. He doesn't criticize the general idea of saving or planning for the future. Proverbs has much to say about some of those things. What Jesus criticizes is what this man does with his possessions, how he uses them, not for God, not for anybody else, only for himself. That's the foolish and deadly move that he's made. And, and the point here is this, that what we do with our stuff reveals the true object of worship in our hearts. What you do with what you own will tell you who you serve. This is what Jesus says later in the chapter in verse 34. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you want to know what your functional God is, the, the God that you are trusting in and hoping in and serving, regardless of whatever confession you might make with your mouth, look at your bank account. Look at your credit card. What we spend ourselves on is what we are hoping will give us life and security and significance. And if God is not a significant part of that, then that tells us something about the true affections of our heart. What makes the man in the parable a fool is that he made his decisions and measures his success in complete disregard for God. So that's a picture of what true success is not. It's not measured by our stuff. So what then is true success and what difference does the gospel of Jesus make in that? Well, true success is, again, not measured by the abundance of our possessions, but by our faithfulness to Christ. That's the measure of true success we see in Scripture. It shows itself in our love for God and our love for neighbor, not our neglect of either. And the gospel of Jesus is what makes this possible. If, if the man in the parable is a negative example in his neglect of God and in his callousness toward others, then it makes sense that what God is looking for in us is faithfulness to God and love for others. That's the kind of life God wants from his people. That's a successful life. 
That's the life well lived, to treat God as God, as he actually deserves to be treated as our holy king and our righteous savior, and to love others the way we've been loved by God. Not because they deserve it necessarily, but because God has had mercy on us, and so we have mercy and love on others. That is true success. And that's a success that transcends the size of our bank account, the square footage of our home, or the label on our shirt. That's a success that can prevail over your absolute worst train wreck day at work. When everything else falls apart, you can be faithful to God and you can show kindness and love to your neighbor. That is a success that lasts even when your career is cut short or your company goes under. Am I loving God? Am I loving my neighbor? Am I being faithful to Christ? But that kind of success is only possible if our identity and security rest squarely in Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news of what he's done. True success must be fueled by the gospel of Jesus. The Bible tells us that that the good news is that Jesus, uh, though we are dead in our sin and deserving of God's judgment because of our rebellion, though that is true in the fullest extent, beyond what we can actually imagine, we are deeply loved by God beyond what we can imagine as well. And we can be forgiven of that sin through faith in Jesus Christ, through, through God's Son. Jesus is true God and true man. He lived a faithful life in our place. He died for our sins on the cross. And when we believe that, when we recognize our failure and we turn from our sin and trust in him, not only does God reconcile us to himself, he actually redeems everything about us. We've seen that testimony this morning. It's not just that these men met Jesus. He's changing their lives. And that's how God works. He redeems everything about us. He gives us a new identity, a new family, a new inheritance in him. And that changes everything. It makes true success actually possible. And so if you think about it this way, if my identity is not in what I own, but in who Jesus is and what he's done for me, that is the defining feature of my life, then my identity and value is no longer measured by my possessions. I am no longer ruled by my possessions. I'm ruled by Christ. I have been purchased. I belong to him which frees me from the temptation to covet. It frees me from the temptation to be driven by attaining the next toy or whatever it is. It's okay to own stuff. The problem is when our stuff owns us. That's when the problem is. But if Christ owns us and all I need, I have in him, then even if I lost everything else in life, I truly have lost nothing. Because I still have Christ. That's if my identity is in him. It frees me to not be driven by possessions. If you think about it this way, what about my security in Christ? If my security is in Christ, that frees me to actually part with my stuff. 
to be willing to lose it or give it away. To others in need, especially to God. It frees me from hoarding what I have because I know my life isn't measured by that. My identity isn't found in that. I can be rich toward God because I have an inheritance in heaven that can never perish or fade or spoil. I can be rich toward God as Jesus puts it in verse 21. I can think of no better illustration of that than the widow's offering later in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 21. Verse 1, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Thinking, Jesus, he needs to take math class or something. How, how is that possible? He says, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. What is it that makes that kind of sacrificial generosity possible? Only if I believe my true security is not in my money, but in my God. That's the only way. True success is not measured by the abundance of our possessions, but by our faithfulness to Christ. And our faithfulness to Christ is a fruit of clinging to the gospel, trusting in what he's done for us and applying it to our lives. God calls us to work hard. He calls us to work hard. But don't let your vision of success be fueled by covetousness, by this desire to gain what you do not have. And don't let your experience of success be marked by greed, by hoarding what you have. Let your vision of success be fueled by love, by love for God, the desire to make much of him, to be faithful to him. And let your experience of success be marked by love, the willingness to give generously out of what God has given to you. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that our hearts are full of insecurity and greed. Lord, as we think about this call you've given us to trust you and follow you. Lord, that sounds so good on paper. It is so hard to do in real life. Our hearts are drawn to so many different things. But Lord, we praise you that the truth of the gospel tells us that everything we need we have in Jesus. Lord, would we believe that? Would that shape how we think about what drives us in our work? Would we see ourselves as your servants, ambassadors of Christ, making much of you, loving and serving our neighbors? May faithfulness to Christ mark our life and our work. And again, we confess we can't do that without you. We need your spirit. We need your word. We need your children. We need 
fellowship with them to do it. So, Lord, we thank you that because of Jesus, we can do it. So, Lord, would we be faithful? We ask it in Jesus' name.